Well, we are going to um, continue a theme in the theme of forgiveness. You say, well, what do you mean continue a theme? You know, the last two weeks, we looked at Second Chronicles 33 in the life of Manasseh, wonderful episode um, entitled Manasseh and God's Amazing Grace, or simply Manasseh and Amazing Grace. And there are a number of lessons, uh, hopefully, that you learn from that narrative uh, this theologically rich when it comes to who God is, how he is faithful to his covenant, and how he is a God that is full of mercy. And it was only appropriate that even earlier we sang that his mercy is, in fact, more. You know, where would we be without the mercy of God? And I had intended, I thought maybe um, this Sunday I would do a Q&A, and I've done that before after I finished a couple of lessons to have a Q&A, make sure we understand it, thinking about applying it. But I thought, no, what I do is a lesson that I think is a complement to what we already studied. And it is answering this question, why God forgives when we fail? Why does God forgive us when we fail? Why does he do that? Why did he forgive Manasseh? Why does he forgive us when we fail and we all fail? Do we all agree with that? You can think through these statements, if you will. He was an adulterer. She was a prostitute. They viewed pornography. She often lost her temper. They fought with words. He would not forgive. She always seemed to find a demeaning word. They just couldn't help themselves. He wanted what they had. She often bent the truth. He never warned them of their eternal danger. They spent more than they should. He made excuses not to help the needy. She never used her talents for the cause of Christ. He battled with pride. He didn't want to lust. She said, I've forgiven too much. You think about those statements and you may find yourself there at some point in time. All of us at some point in time, I think, can say, Surely a battle with pride, absolutely. There have been times maybe you have fought with words. And there may have been times you've seen things you should not have seen. There are failures in everyone's spiritual journey. We are on a journey. And as we go through this episode in life, and when I say episode, I'm comparing it to eternal life. Here we are for a period of time, and maybe the Lord gives us 70 and maybe it's 80 by strength, we will have failures along the way. It's just the reality. But then God intervenes and God being a forgiving God, what does he do? He forgives the adulterer and the prostitute and the person that's viewed the pornography and the person that's lost their temper and the person that deals with pride and the person that covets and the person that lusts and the person that bends the truth The person that doesn't follow what the Lord wants them to do and telling other people that they are facing an eternal damnation before a holy God. And then he forgives when we fail. And so some of those same people can say, now I have peace. I experienced the joy of God like I once knew. The the weight of guilt is now 
removed. And how many times have I talked with people and they talk about the guilt that is weighing on their shoulders, weighing in their life, and then they come to the Lord in humility and then the guilt is removed. There are people that I've talked to, and maybe you've been one of them at some point in time. You can say you have a renewed sense of purpose and belonging, whereas when you were in sin and when you had failed, then your purpose and belonging, it becomes a bit skewed. You you don't see it the way that you should. What is it that the Lord has for me? And this is what can happen when a person is in sin. Their vision isn't what it should be. But then we repent and we call out to a God who's Mercy is, in fact, more, and he forgives and he restores. And this is in part, I think, why in Galatians chapter 6, it tells us that those who are spiritual are to help those who have fallen into a transgression. And we are to do what? We're to set their bones back properly. And there are people around us and there are people in this room that at some point in time you have stumbled and you have fallen, and it requires someone else that can come alongside to set the bone properly. And one reason that we should approach you with a sense of humility is because we might be that same person ourselves. Eventually, we may need someone that can set our bone properly so that we can walk with the Lord the way that we would desire and God is intended. Some of those same people that made those statements before might also say, I've never cried such tears of joy. Tears are when a person realizes their sin, but yet a holy God has forgiven them, and then they can have this sense of joy like never before. A person who lived a life of shame, but now they can come before the Lord, and they can say, I no longer feel the shame that I did before. I don't have that scarlet letter written all over me. These same people who might make these statements as I read before, are people that would say, there's now a new song in my heart, whereas before that song had been muted. It had been silenced. Because really, how could I sing to the Lord when I know I'm not doing the things that I should? Now, I'm not talking about perfection. I mean, if it were perfection, then all of us would be silent, would we not? We would all be people that cannot sing at all because... But I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about a sense where you know right now you're making a decision to not live for the Lord. And you're holding on to something. And the longer you hold on to it, the longer your voice is silent. The the longer you hold on to it, the longer you can never sing to the Lord the way that you should. And uh, I enjoy singing to the Lord personally, and we all should. The scripture is clear, isn't it? We are to be a people, even as I was thinking about, it's in Psalm 34, it says, his praise shall continually be in my mouth and I will exalt his name together. He calls to, let's exalt his name together, continually in my mouth. And the only way that it's continually in my mouth is that I have a continual communion with God and what interferes with our communion with God but sin. It runs interference, does it not? And when it runs interference, we would do well to as quickly as we can. I might even say hurriedly, go to the throne of grace and say, God, will you forgive me? And the scripture is clear, isn't it? From Hebrews chapter four, it tells us we can come to the throne of grace where we will find what? Help in time of need. 
help in time of need. And then those same people that may make those statements as before will have that sense that they never felt so close to the Lord. And what brings about these radical changes? How can a person make one statement of confession or or one statement of where they're battling with some sin in their life, but yet then go to a point where they say, oh, the joy of the Lord, the song of the Lord, the confidence that I have in the Lord. It is undoubtedly experiencing the forgiveness of God. I mean, in our study of Manasseh, it was obvious, quite obvious that God is a God that loves to forgive and he desires to forgive. And he responds to humble hearts. And and once he has a humble heart, he can set them on the right course again. And Manasseh was brought to the end of himself. And what did the Lord do? The Lord humbled him and the Lord poured into him and the Lord caused him to know him. And he brought about the reforms that we talked about even last week as a result of what? God's amazing grace. And when we think about Manasseh in history, he he would be considered one of the most wicked people that ever existed. But yet we see this absolutely radical transformation of his heart. And it is only because of God's great mercy, his great love, his great forgiveness. He is a God that desires to forgive. And that's why one of our key texts, even from last week was Micah 7 and 18, when it says, who is a God like you? There is no God like you. And you're a God of unchanging love. And you're a God that wipes out even our iniquity. He desires to forgive. God longs to forgive. So we ask ourselves a question. Why does God uh, forgive us when we fail? He, He longs to do it. We are all faced with some spiritual failure, but yet we can go to the throne of grace whenever we come to our senses and find help. Now, the lesson in one sense is um, straightforward. Um, There are two major points that I want to bring out for us this morning, and it's this. Number one, why does he forgive? Because of his unchangeable character. God's unchangeable character. So we want to consider this aspect of God and who he is and how we can then from that derive confidence from it. And then also God's unbreachable covenant. God has made a covenant that he would be faithful to his people and nothing can breach that. Nothing can change it. So first, let's consider God's unchangeable character. And there are a host of texts for us to consider in this. Let's start our time in Exodus 34. Turn with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, wonderful text. And it tells us here, Moses has requested in chapter 33, in verse 18, then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. God says, well, I will do that. I will show you my compassion. I'm a God of compassion. I'm a God of grace. And he says in 22, and it came about while my glory is passing by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Um, Because you cannot see all of me. You cannot um, experience the fullness of my glory. But isn't it interesting that when Moses would interact with God in the tabernacle, it says that Moses would speak to God. How? In what way? Face to face as a friend would speak to a friend. 
And now this is something that we should and must always take into account when we think about the greatness of God. Now we have the privilege of going to the living God whenever we please and we can commune with him. Notice chapter 34 there in verse six, it says, verse five, the Lord descended in the cloud and he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. And what did he proclaim? The Lord, the Lord God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This self declaring God says, you want to understand my glory. Let me tell you what it means. And what is the statement here that's so important? Notice what he says that he abounds in loving kindness and truth. This word we've looked at before. And I studied through some of the Psalms, a beautiful Hebrew word, this word hesed. You would do well to study it. You would do well to look in your Bible, to follow it as it's just this pronounced sense of God's covenant faithfulness throughout scripture. And this is why, and I mention this every time I do, because I think it's appropriate. That is every time I come to this word and I'm in a NASB, I mention this, this idea of loving kindness and the reason the translators decided on loving kindness, they were sort of at a, a, a stress for words. How do we, what can we do to communicate it? And so now let's think about love continually loving. And let's think about God's kindness. That is how he shows himself practically useful to his covenant people. And it's merged these two together. And it is God's loving kindness that is demonstrated his covenant love, his faithfulness, his loyalty. This is our God and it is unchanging in him. So when we think about God being unchanging, There is obviously no change in his character. There are no moods with God. There is no indecisiveness and there's no change in his being. Exodus. And if we remain there, Exodus chapter three, verse 14, what did God tell Moses to say to Pharaoh? What was his proclamation? Tell him what, that who is sending you? I am, I am that I am. I have always been, will always will be, and always will be. We think often, of course, we do in time, do we not? Um, I heard some of you talk about when you moved here, what is going to happen next? Even being married for what is 27 years, um, a birthday, little Josiah, one month old. He has a beginning in life. We think in the sense of, of time, do we not? But God is outside of time and this beautiful God does what? He comes and he transcends and he interfaces with us in time to save, to demonstrate his forgiveness. But he is an unchanging God. Look with me at Psalm 102. Psalm 102 in verses 26. And it says, verse 26 in Psalm 102 says, even they will perish, but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. So this declaration here, again, God is an unchanging God. Uh, We are like garments. And the moment we started life, we began to end life. Did we not? With that beginning was the start of an end. 
we started to die from the moment of conception, but not God. You say, why is that important? It is obviously important because we don't have to worry about, as we do with our fellow humans, of some change in character, some change in attitude towards us, some change in promises, which we'll note in a moment. Um, If you were to consider Isaiah chapter 41, Isaiah 41, and we're going to look at a number of texts throughout this study, Isaiah 41, and notice what is communicated in Verse four, it says, who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, I am the first and I am the what? Last, I am he. I am he. Look at 48 and 12. 48 and 12. He says, listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I call. I am he. I am the first and I am the last surely my hand founded the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. And I love that imagery that is communicated here. And what he is saying is that all of creation is at my beckoning. They surrender to me because I'm the unchanging God, the first and the last. And I look forward to our time that we'll start fairly soon. I think in Isaiah 40 to 48 and look at this theme repeatedly. Consider Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one, we see here another declaration that God is an unchanging God. And this has import for us when we think about his forgiveness. Um, Romans 1, 23, it says they professed to be wise. 22, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the what God, the incorruptible God for the image of in the form of corruptible man and birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures incorruptible. Another way to simply communicate uh, without decay. Of course, there is no decay because in God, he represents life himself. Uh, The creatures that were created would eventually decay, would fault, would corrode, but not with the living God. Hebrews 1, we won't go there, but Hebrews 1, um, 11 and 12, it says that God is the same. His years do not come to an end Yesterday and forever, there is no change with him. Because why? God is an immutable God. And what is immutability? That's a statement of his perfections. And it's all encompassing. That is, God is perfect in his being. and all of his attributes, he is unchanging. And it would, be, it would be wonderful if all of us were immutable in our moods. But they're not. Do any of you ever have a mood swing? And some are just looking at me with the same face that I asked before. Uh, So absolutely no change in mood. Right? Has anyone ever said to you, boy, you're, I don't know. You're changing on me. Has anyone ever said to you, what's gotten into you before? Of course they've said it. We change. Now you say, wait a minute, but God, I see expressions of God. So what do you mean by mutability? I'm talking about his very character right now, because we do see expressions of God. God shows at times we see his anger, do we not? Uh, With God, we see the expression of his loving kindness. We see God saying, "I'm, I'm going to relent of the evil that I'm going to do towards you. 
But this is not a change in character. This is simply an unfolding of his expression of his covenant faithfulness to his people. You say, what? Unravel that with me for a moment. What do you mean by that? God's ultimate goal is that he be glorified. And God will express in a given time the attributes that we're bringing that about. When God says, I've had enough of you, Israel, and he shows his anger and he sends them off to exile, this is God's, his covenant faithfulness unfolding. Even when it came to Manasseh, when we looked at him, when he says enough Manasseh, yes, you reigned for 55 years, enough of it. And then he sends him off by the way of the Assyrians and he humbles him. That's him showing his covenant faithfulness. And then when the people of God would cry out, what do we see constantly happening? God would be kindled inside, if you will. His compassions would be demonstrated towards them. This is not God changing in his being. This is God showing the expressions of his attributes towards his people. Whereas with us, we, we change. And we change often not because of covenant faithfulness. We change simply because of mood disappointments. And sometimes we express ourselves in ways that's unlike God, whereas God at times is showing his anger and even his wrath, but he's bringing about a good means. Whereas with us, the anger of man, the wrath of man rarely accomplishes what? The righteousness of God. And we might consider this biblical illustrated in a number of places. Look with me at Hebrews chapter four. So God is unchanging in his character, no change in his being. He is the great I am, and it's illustrated biblically, and he is unchanging in his knowledge. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews 4, 13. Let's keep skipping by here. Hebrews four thirteen, and it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And this is a wonderful verse when you think about it. And it really is a declaration in a nutshell that nothing is hidden from the sovereign eyes of God. Now, this is also important even when we think about what we're addressing this morning about forgiveness and sin. No sin is hidden from God. Isn't it amazing when you think about, I don't like that word amazing. No, it's really not. It is in one sense amazing. Maybe the first word should be it's saddening. When you see leaders that the truth comes out and you wonder, you say to yourselves, what were they thinking when they took those actions? And there seems to be this tendency when it comes to sin that people will think that will never happen to me. It will never be uncovered. Um, The truth will not come out. Man may never see it, but God always will. Amen. And this is what we have to live with. And I've heard Pastor John say, you know, truth, uh, time and truth go hand in hand. And there's true. But I, I add a perhaps an addendum to that. And it would be this, that sometimes truth or time, time may lie, but eternity is always honest. Yeah, it's always honest. That is, a person may live a life here and time and truth going hand to hand. It may not ever be discovered, but it has always been before the eyes of God. 
Um, God is unchanging in his counsel. Look with me at Proverbs. Turn back to the Proverbs. Proverbs 19. Proverbs 19 and then 21. It says, listen to counsel, verse 20, and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will do what? It will stand. How many of you have planned your way and it got changed in life? I I think everyone perhaps should even raise their hand, shouldn't you? You had this plan for life. It's all laid out. It's reasonable. There it is. Your stamp of approval. And the Lord says, thank you for the submission. Here's the edit. (laughs) It's just like me. I'm editing my work right now. I thought it was a great thought months ago. And then when you move away from your work, you realize, what was I saying here? Isn't that true? That's why you can't edit your work too close to it. And all of us have submitted plans before the Lord. And you should say this. I'm thankful he changed them. I'm thankful he changed them. Because in the moment we may say to ourselves, why is he changing these plans? This doesn't seem the best course of action. And then what God does in his graciousness sometimes, and I do add that sometimes, he allows us to look back and see, oh, I see why. Thank you, Lord. He is unchanging in his plans. They will stand. Go with me to Isaiah again. Isaiah 46. So he's unchanging in his knowledge. He's unchanging in his counsel. He is also unchanging in his purpose. In his purpose. Isaiah 46.10. I'll start at verse 8. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient things or from ancient times, things have not been done, saying my purpose will be what does he say? Established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God will bring about what he desires for his creation. And this is in part why if we were to take the thought from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that we are his workmanship. We are created for good works of which he prepared when? Beforehand, that we should walk in them. God's plan for this universe is unfolding in front of us. And sometimes we say to ourselves, it is a madhouse out here. How can this be the sovereign plan unfolding? It is still a part of it. The treachery that we see is a part of God's sovereign plan unfolding. When Israel would have been cast into exile, that was a part of a sovereign plan unfolding. When God allowed Manasseh to reign for 55 years, more than any other king, that was a part of a sovereign plan unfolding. And what we must do is trust a God of unchanging character. And realize, wait a minute. This plan is unfolding. A part of this plan is that he will receive me fully to himself. Jesus Christ said what? I go and prepare a home for you. And if he goes and prepares a home for us, that in fact will come about. Let me rest in an immutable purpose. So if we think this way, then God's nature cannot change. Then his attributes cannot change. Then his purposes cannot change. Then his promises cannot change. Has he not promised that he will forgive you? Would you say yes or no to that? He has promised to forgive you. Therefore, we can rest in his immutable character. Now, for a moment, let's just focus on God's love, though. 
I mean, uh, when I begin to think about this, there's so much that I could say in any number of attributes, but let's focus for a moment in God's love. And we might think about how it's defined and, and even contrasted. Well, when we think about its definition, initially when we think about love, um, one may ask, or if I were to ask you, what is the opposite of love? Many people might say, well, it's, it's clear the opposite of love is hate. Well, let me have you reconsider. You might say that it's hate, is it? I think the opposite of love is selfishness. Because love is really, in one sense, defined by the giving of oneself. So the simplest definition of, of love is in giving for the benefit of another. We see this on display in God all the time. Scripture is clear. Something that we learned perhaps even before we knew the Lord, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave. John chapter 10 tells us what? Uh, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. First John 410. It says us this, that God gave his son as an expiation for our sins. It tells us in Mark 10 and 45, the son of man did not come to be served, but to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve and not be served and to give his life. Love is, in fact, giving. But see, contrasted, the world, this is where sometimes uh, confusion comes in because we allow the world's definitions to influence our biblical definitions, our Christian definitions. We allow the world and its view to shape how we live and how we make decisions. I mean, we all have to be honest and admit that there is some measure of influence that we fight against, I pray, every day against the world. The world says, well, love is passion. But the scripture says, well, no, love is intimate. By intimate, I mean this, John 17, 23. It tells us that he loves us with the same love that he loves the son. This is intimate. Proverbs 3, 23. It says that he is intimate with the upright. What does it mean he's intimate with the upright? He has a knowledge of them. Uh, it is personal. It is engaging. It's affectionate. No, it's not as the world says. The world says, well, uh, I'll love you until you disappoint me. But God's love is different. Hosea, if we were just to consider the, the major theme of Hosea is what? God's love is enduring. Even God says through Hosea, we remember uh, many accounts of how we see his enduring love, but God riles himself, if you will, and he looks on Israel and he says, how can I give you up? How can I set you aside? He says, I can't do it. Although you have been despicable and you have been like Gomer, you have prostituted yourself in the world, but yet I am connected to you. My love is enduring. That's why I always love to see people, you know, older couples, obviously, they can stand up and say, we've been together 55 years, 60 years. I mean, think about, I was fortunate. I really am. I'm learning more and more how I was fortunate that, you know, like my, my dad and mom, I mean, the only thing that separated him was death. My um, grandparents, um, we called it, my granddad called him Daddy Rich was his name for Richard Danner. 
and you know, high school sweethearts, married right after high school. Um, both of them went to be with the Lord when they were like in their 80s. So you're talking, you know, nearly almost like 70 years together. Think about that. One person for 70 years. 70 years. Oh, well, lovely. I talked to someone earlier today, and they said that their anniversary was on today in here. Their anniversary was on July 5th. And the reason they did it this way so that they could remember all the fireworks from the 4th in their marriage, you know? <laughs> Keep the fireworks going, right? <laughs> That's right. I like that thought. <laughs> yeah, 70 years together. And you would have thought it was just like yesterday with them. And what's interesting with this enduring love that they demonstrated was this. When my um, granddad died, it was like a piece of my grandma was gone. And about a year later, she was gone. It's like you're so bound to one another. And that they're beyond the point like finishing sentences, right? Even Joanne and I can do that. And we're kind of, we're novices. We're only uh, looking at, you know, 28 years in June. Um, so we can kind of finish thoughts. But they were like, before you even start the thought, <laughs> I know what you're going to say. And you're going to say it in three sentences, right? How did you know? <laughs> that's enduring love. And that's at a human level. So imagine it at the divine level. And imagine at the divine level where your spouse has been an adulterer, an appeated adulterer, a spiritual adulterer. And this is how God was with his people. And this is why God says to Hosea, go out and marry a woman of the world. So you'll know what it's like. Question this morning, are you glad that God's love endures? Oh, amen. See, the world says, I'll love you as long as you're attractive and meet my needs. How often do we see this happening in society? Especially in LA. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I know. The city of, well, we won't say. Yeah, sin and sun and stupidity. The three S's here, right? But yet, what does the scripture tell us in Romans 5? We were helpless, we were sinners, we were ungodly, and we were enemies. What does it tell us in Ephesians 2? We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We walked according to the course of the, the, the prince of the air. We were children of wrath, but God. And what does it say? But God, being rich in mercy, because loved us made us alive. See, the world's love is easily explainable. You can comprehend it. But it's unlike God's love. Look with me for a moment, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, and we're going to notice briefly 17 to 19. This is several messages in itself. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That is, to dwell in your heart means a sense of um, occupy. It, it literally is a word that could mean like to, to be in a room and to, to occupy a room. You might think about a person in their home and it says, well, I'm going to make this my dwelling place. I'm going to settle into it. It's like when you first buy a home, it, you're not settled into the home yet. 
but it really becomes yours when you put up your artwork and your furniture and, and there's your chair and that's where you have this place and your things are there. And this is sort of the idea of the word, let it dwell in your heart. Let it take up full residence in your heart through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. depth. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses what? What does it surpass? Knowledge that you will be filled up to all the fullness of God. Isn't this what we want in life to be filled up with the fullness of God? And this is consistent with the thought from chapter five, that we'll be full of the Holy Spirit. Even as George is mentioning earlier about the 90 days to the Bible, um, the benefit of that is getting in as much as we can of the word of God. How do we fill ourselves up with the fullness of God? We can only fill ourselves up with the fullness of God as we have thoughts about God. And this is why the psalmist says, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. And this is what sin does, though. It takes away the praise. It takes away the song. It takes away the fullness. It takes away the comprehension. It takes away the appreciation. It takes away the awe. It takes away the intimacy. It takes away the affection. But then he still forgives us. He says here, comprehend. The word means to, to mentally grasp it. I want you to grasp the richness of this. Yes, in one sense it's beyond words, but strive as much as you can to know it as best you can. And this is my prayer for you is what he's saying. I want you to grasp this love. And notice what he says, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ, to know. Word that's used here is, is a, a word in the language that means to, to know by way of, of experience, to have experiential knowledge. How do we know? then how would we know the love of God if, you, if he's saying, I want you to know it just not cognitively, but I also want you to know it by experience. Then if I'm going to know the love of God by experience, it means that God has to have me go through an episode in life where it becomes real to me. How do you know someone loves you? Hmm. I mean, how do you know someone loves you? What does that person do? Must, mustn't they do something for you? Mustn't they demonstrate it? They must show it, right? Because it's clear, for God so loved the world, it wasn't just a thought about the world. He, he loved the world enough that he would do what? He would give. When we look to the cross, every moment we look to the cross, we should look and we should see divine love. Here is a demonstration of his love. How can I ever question his love? I asked you a question even this morning. Have you ever questioned the love of God? And you don't have to answer. But I'm sure some have. And this is where we have to arrest our emotions and our thoughts. And we have to say, God, help me to know the love of God. And one of the greatest ways that you can know the love of God is being forgiven. You can go to him and say, Father, forgive me. I sinned again. I looked again. I thought again. I said it again. I did it again. And then we can experience. It can be gnosko. 
the love of Christ. And why does he do it? He's unchanging. I promise this way. There's some people I didn't sleep well last night. Uh, I saw something recently that it was a documentary that was hopeful and inspiring, but yet I was at times deeply disturbed. I was up early, I don't know what time this morning, thinking about it, praying about it. I saw these, I'll never forget these girls' faces. Um, a gentleman who was abandoned at age six woke up one morning, his, his parents were gone, his other siblings were gone. For 10 years, he was a beggar. Made his way, he literally walked three and a half days to Nairobi, Kenya, from where he lived, and began to look around that someone may help him there. One thing led to another, and I'll one day give you the full story. This beggar boy who barely survived in the slums eventually becomes a millionaire, multi-millionaire in the 80s. Um, through honest hard work. A taxi service becomes, one taxi that he saved up for becomes a taxi service, becomes tires, becomes welding, becomes real estate. Eventually, the Lord would allow him to be a distributor of oil and gas in western Kenya. Amazing story. And there he is one day, and he's driving in his Mercedes, and his kids are being interviewed and say how he would just change his cars all the time. And it was one day riding and he began to just weep and bawl and he realized this was not really the purpose of his life. There was more that he should be doing. And he wanted to go back. So he began a ministry of helping orphans. He first started with just bringing them to his home and his home was sort of overridden with orphans and eventually would buy a property and a larger property and they would transform that property and make it very even suitable. But these were street girls that he would find, kids that were literally just asleep by themselves, each day surviving. And it broke my heart to hear the story of two of these girls, one girl, Anastasia. She said her mom would bring home men. She says, I was seven. She came home with two men. One for her and one for me. Your mom is dying. She has AIDS. You do as well. And she put her hands, her head in her hands, and she began to cry. There are three other little girls. The girl tells a story. One day her dad raped her. Her mom came home, know what had happened to her, blamed her for it, got a piece of wood and beat her. Who did this to her? She said, her dad said, don't tell anyone of this. So she blamed it on the uncle. And then she was abandoned, she and her two little sisters. But she was taken in. Now, I must be honest with you. Um, I was enraged. I was enraged. I was enraged. I still feel it. You say to yourself, how do you do that to a person? How do you do that to a young girl? 
So I ask myself before my emotions get too much of me, because I am changing. I am not immutable. I started to pray. I said, Lord, these wicked and worthless men, that you would save them. These little girls, that you would heal their emotions. I thought, who is a God like who is a God like you that can forgive someone that does that? And who is a God like you that can heal those emotions from those little girls? Who is a God like you that can show them compassion and kindness and gentleness? Who is a God like you that all that is happening in this vast universe, he sees little, this little girl and he hears the story of this little girl. This is beyond me. It really is. And let it be beyond you. But because it's beyond you, you should be able to say, oh God, thank you for forgiving me. You're a great God. Thank you that you do not change. Your love is everlasting. On one of my trips to Kenya, and I was there two years ago, I'm going to make it a point to seek out the ministry. Um, I'm still bothered by it because it's reality. They're saying in certain areas, 100,000, these orphans, just in alone, sleeping by themselves. Appreciate what God has done for you because you were an orphan once and the Lord took you in. Amen? Father, we are thankful for who you are. Goodness, grace, and mercy that you show us. Uh, help us to appreciate these words. In Christ's name, amen.